Let me ask you this morning as we get started, um, what do you think is the measure of greatness? What do you think makes a person's life great when all is said and done? Is it how much stuff you accumulate in this world, how wealthy you are? Is it how often or how much you're praised by others? Is it how popular or how well-known you are? How much you've accomplished in this life? Yeah, I don't think any of us, if we had the choice that we would say, you know what, I really don't need to live a life of significance. I really don't need to have my life count for anything in this world. We all want that. And I believe we want that because God has put that in us. God wants us to live lives of significance. He wants us to fulfill the plans and purposes for our lives, that, the great plans and purposes for our lives that he has for us. But the question is, how? How do we live a life of greatness? You know, today I want us to consider that question. And I don't want us to consider that question by thinking about what the world thinks about it, but by what the creator of the world thinks about it. And I think the answer to that question will surprise you in its simplicity. You know, about 20 years ago, I wrestled with that question. I really did. I wrestled with it a lot. I was in my 20s, and I was the assistant pastor of a small church in rural Arizona, church of just a few dozen people. And uh, I wanted to live a life of significance. I really did. I, you know, in your 20s, you're idealistic and you want to make sure, you know, I want to make my life count. And I was in that place in my life where like, God, I don't want to be wasting my time. I want to be doing the things that matter. I want to make a life that, live a life that truly makes a difference. But I kind of come to a point as I was in this real small church in this know-nothing town of saying to myself, you know, I don't think I'll ever attain that. I mean, I was nobody special. I was raised in a small town. I was living in a small town. There were no real accomplishments that I could point to in my life. And back then, there was a book that came out that really seemed to grab my attention. It seemed to grab a lot of people's attention about how to get the most out of life. Do you remember this book? It's called Don't Sweat the Small Stuff, and it's all small stuff by Richard Carlson. Have you, did you, I bet some of you have with a few of these books in your, in your bookshelves at home, right? It was such a popular book. It, had, it sold so many millions of copies that the guy who was the author, he just kept pumping out more and more of these books. I mean, he had over 20 such books on this topic. How to not to sweat the small stuff for dads, for moms, for teenagers, for graduates, for people at work, for people at school, for people in love. I mean, he just kept going and going with this thing, milking it for all it was worth. And in those books... He said, listen to this, he said, what holds us back from greatness is ourselves. He said, we we need to eliminate worry from our lives and focus on what we have rather than what we want, which, which, which is great, right? But his key premise to this whole series of books was this, and I want us to pay attention to this. This is his key premise, or actually two rules in his book. Number one, don't sweat the small stuff. And number two, it's all small stuff, right? It's a great concept. It's a liberating concept. But it's not really a true concept, at least not according to the Bible. There are times when we should sweat the small stuff because some things in our lives that we don't think are a big deal really are a big deal, at least to God. 
He says that the small things, God says the small things often get us in trouble in this life. And, he, and they keep us from living out the great purposes and plans that he has for your life and for mine. God teaches us in his word that there are some things that are small stuff that we should sweat. Things like being obedient to God. And if we downplay them, if we say, ah, nothing's really a big deal in this world. We should all just live kind of carefree and just kind of go with the, with the punches. We might coast through life, but we're not going to live the life that God ultimately wants us to live. I'd say that God's spin on this whole thing is this. That greatness comes from not only being focused on the big stuff, but being faithful in the small stuff. I'm going to say that again. Greatness comes, in God's eyes, not just from being focused on the big stuff in this life. Work, relationships, uh, family, those sorts of things. But also by being faithful in the small stuff. And speaking of the Bible, if there were ever a, a book of the Bible or an author of the Bible that really was a straight shooter, was a straight talk when it comes to this kind of thing, it was a guy by the name of James. Now, as we did our readings this last week, for those of you who have been able to keep up with us through this community Bible experience as we're reading through the New Testament over 40 days, last week you were supposed to read Hebrews and then James and then Mark. And my guess is, if you did this, after you got through James and all the complex theological truths that he was throwing at you, that James was probably a breath of fresh air to you, right? It's very clear cut. It's very simple. It's very to the point. And basically, James, the book of James, is a collection of short sayings. It was written by James, and they were likely things that James advised or preached to people over the course of his life. This is a book that's very similar to the book of Ecclesiastes and the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament by how it's kind of formatted. And it's, probably, it's known as probably, it's probably the oldest of the New Testament books, James is. It's probably written only maybe about 10 or 12 years after Jesus was resurrected from the dead. Now, I want to encourage you today to turn with me in your Bibles, if you have them, to James chapter 1. Um, in your books of the Bible, if you're using that uh, through this community Bible experience, it's on page 314. And if you don't have a Bible with you, but... You realize your smartphone's in your pocket? Pull it out. It's okay. <laughs> Turn to gracetucson.org slash Bible on your web browser and you can follow along with the scriptures and a lot of extra sermon notes that I give in there at this time. Now, as you're turning there, let me just say this. This book, James, is, is kind of unique because it was written to Jews. And it was not just written to Jews, but it was written to Jews who had professed faith in Christ and had been scattered all over the known world at that time. Now, what you might not realize, if you look at this map here, all of those dots that you see there were significant settlements of Christian Jews during the first century. We tend to think sometimes that all the Christians were just kind of huddled up around Israel or something. But they were spread out all over the known world as, as Paul and, and other disciples just spread out and was telling the good news of Jesus. And many of these these Christians, uh, they came to faith in Christ as pagans, as people who weren't Jews, but many of them came to faith in Christ after previously being Jews. And this book of James that we're looking at this morning, it was written specifically to them, to those who had converted from Judaism to Christianity because they had their own unique set of struggles that he wanted to address. James, James really had a heart for, those, for the Hebrew people, for those who were of Jewish descent. And so this letter that he wrote was specifically directed to them as they were scattered all over 
the known world at that time. James had a real heart for them in part because they were facing growing pressure from both sides. They were facing growing pressure from the Jewish people who wanted to see this whole Christianity thing snuffed out. They were also receiving persecution from the Roman government officials who didn't like the thing, didn't want them around. By this time, by the time that James was writing this, there was an emperor on the throne by the name of Claudius. And Claudius was running them out of Rome by this point. Their businesses, the Christian businesses around Rome, they were being boycotted. Even the kids in schools, were be, if they were Christian kids, they were being mocked. They were being thrown out of the schools for their faith. I mean, it was rough stuff these early Jewish Christians were going through. And in the midst of all that, these Christians, they were kind of blowing off. They weren't taking seriously some small aspects of their Christian faith. They were facing so many things from so many angles. There were just some things they weren't paying a lot of attention to. Some of the things that Christ was calling them to be obedient to that they just weren't focusing on. And this was important to James. James said, because basically, if he were Richard Carlson today, he'd be saying, sweat the small stuff. Those things that you tend to overlook, those those sins in your life, those things that you think, ah, they're not that big of a deal. James would say, yeah, they are. They are a big deal. Because they're a big deal to God and because they can hurt, damage, even destroy the lives of other people. James is saying in the book of James, if you don't walk the walk, if you don't live out the life as a follower of Jesus day by day, month by month, and even when you think no one's watching, if you don't do that, he says, then it's all for nothing. He says, we have to be, yeah, we, we have to be focused on the big stuff, the things that matter most. But we have to be faithful. We have to sweat the small stuff because it's those things that we tend to downplay, that we tend to think aren't that big a deal to God, but they really are. And they can destroy us. So let's hear what James has to say about some of these things in his own words. James chapter 1, starting in verse 21, it says this. It says, therefore... He says, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word that was planted in you, which can save you. And then it says, don't merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves, he says, but do what it says. He says, anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom, right? We sometimes think that this gives bondage. That we, you know, we follow all this stuff, it's just going to shackle us. No, he saying he gives us freedom. He says, but the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they've heard, but doing it, he says, they will be blessed in all that they do. Notice now, he's talking to them, and he's saying, I know you know all this stuff. He says, the word, it's already been planted in you, he says. He says, this is a new information to you. But he's just pointing out, you guys, you're not doing it. You're just kind of downplaying this stuff. And after James, in the opening part of his letter, after he starts talking about you know, being faithful in the trials, and he says, yeah, I recognize we're getting persecuted. We're getting hit on all sides here. I get that. We need, to, we need to hold fast. We need to persevere. But he says, despite that, he says, I need you to focus on the small stuff. 
That stuff that you tend to overlook or you tend to downplay in your own life and think it's not that big of a deal. No doubt, because he knows that if we're not obedient to God in the small stuff, we can be laser-focused on the things that matter, the, the big stuff, and it won't get us anywhere in this life. James says, we can have all the faith in the world, but if we're not reflecting it with our own lives, then we're living a hollow faith. In fact, James' words are, you're living a, a dead faith. Look at uh, chapter 2, starting in verse 14. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save him? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accomplished by action, is what? It's dead. Have you ever thought about that? And he says, but someone will say, well, you have faith and I have deeds. And then he says, show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there's one God. Good. Wonderful. (laughs) Even the demons believe that. And they shudder. Now, we might think, wow, James, you're kind of tough here. But you know what? Jesus said the exact same thing. There was a time when Jesus said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, but you not do what I say? Remember this? He says, When you do that, it's like you're building a house on sand. You know, it's interesting. When you read through the book of James, and maybe you picked up on this, it's a short book, but over half the verses in the book of James are commands. They're imperatives. More so, it's a higher percentage than any other book in the Bible. I mean, half the things he's saying, he's saying, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this. All these things that you tend to overlook, don't overlook them. And he speaks to several topics in this book. But for the sake of time this morning, I want to just focus on two, if that's okay. Two that I think are really big in James' mind. He he makes it really clear. But two things that I think sometimes we tend to overlook in our lives as well, to our own detriment. And also to the hurt and pain of other people around us. So I'm just going to pull out two of them, but I think they're big ones in the book of James. And we're going to look at those together as we think about this idea of sweating the small stuff. And the first one that I want to look at today is about watching your words. Watching your words. Now, (laughs) James talks about this a lot. But as I say that, think about this for a moment. How guilty are you and I? of saying things at times that hurt people. Of getting upset, of getting caught up in a moment, of somebody, knowing that someone's pushing our buttons, and we don't watch our words. Multiple times throughout this book, James goes back to the words we speak, and he says we should be careful in how we use them. Look at chapter 1, verse 26. He says this. He says, If anyone considers himself religious... And yet does not keep a tight rein on their tongue. He deceives himself and his religion is worthless. Worthless, James says. Worthless. Yeah, James cautions about our tongues. And he says, we're capable with those little devices in our mouths of making great boasts about ourselves with them. He says, we're guilty of slandering others with them. He says we're guilty of swearing and of 
committing, of, of making false promises with them. In fact, if you, if you read, remember this when you read this, James actually calls the tongue a fire. And he says, there's a part of the body that can burn and destroy people. He says it's full of deadly poison and it is terribly, terribly difficult to tame. And so James says, be quick to listen and slow, slow, slow to speak. Think about this. How many times have we said something in the heat of a moment? And it, and it felt good at the time, right? <laughs> it really felt good. Only to realize later how deeply those words hurt or wounded someone. Far deeper than we ever expected, right? Have you ever had that happen? Let me give you an example. My wife's not here, so I can say this. She'll be here in second service. A few weeks ago, we were at our counselor, uh, marriage counselor. It's kind of like, for us, we, we kind of consider her our marriage mechanic. We just go in there for a tune-up consistently, just to make sure we're doing well. And so we were there one, uh, one day a few weeks ago, and the counselor looked around and said, Would any, do you, any of you have something you'd like to talk about today? And we kind of were quiet for a second, and my wife said, you know what, I have something I'd like to say. Could you kind of help me talk to David about this? Because I don't think he's going to listen to me. I'm like, oh boy, here it comes. What is this about? And then she brings up the issue in our lives. The thing that for, gosh, how long have we been married? Since 1995, 20, I don't know. You, tell, you can tell me. No, two, 2001. Oh my goodness. I hope she doesn't hear this. <laughs> I grad, yeah, I graduated from college in 1995. 2001 was when we got married. Anyway, different, different problem there. It, it, We've been married for 16 years now, and for all those years, we've always had this problem around neatness and organization in our house. Now, for, I, I was raised in a home by a mom who, she had this phrase, there's a place for everything and everything in its place, right? I mean, if there was something that was left out on the countertop, if it didn't belong there, it should be put away. If there was something on the floor, it shouldn't be there, it should be put somewhere else, didn't matter what it was. And I was raised this way. And my wife had a different approach to this. Quite consistently. And it's, had, it's created some intense fellowship in our, in our relationship over the last 16 years. And so there was this one day, and this is where she was getting to. There was this one day I went into her, the medicine cabinet to grab a, I don't know, a vitamin or aspirin or something. I don't remember what it was. And I opened it up and I'm like, oh, whoa. I mean, there were bottles and boxes of meds just piled in there someone with ex already expired i'm like what the heck and i just without even thinking i just start going through and cleaning all this I'm like this needs to be clean this is a mess and so i'm going there i'm cleaning all this stuff and i finally get the way i, need, I think it should be and then we in this counseling session as i am paraphrasing what my wife is saying i'm not i can't say anything i'm just supposed to paraphrase back what she's saying it's driving me nuts but I'm, that's what i'm doing and she says i had a system and you totally ruined it when you reorganize it, I'm thinking, system? What is the system? Just kind of slamming the door shut really fast so it doesn't fall out? Don't tell her I said that. She said, I had a system and you completely ruined it. Now I can't find the meds I need when I need them. And I'm still paraphrasing and I'm thinking, you know what? I'm thinking to myself, counselor, you're supposed to stop this after a minute or two so I can speak. And then she paraphrases. I'm like, this has been going on an hour now. It seems like it was probably five minutes, but it seemed like an hour. 
And I finally get the chance to speak, and I've kind of, as soon as she says, okay, Dave, you have something you want to say? I'm like, oh, yeah. So I'm, I'm doing the paramason thing, and I'm, I'm, I'm getting ready to lay out my case. And I'm going to be nice, I'm going to be gentle, I'm going to be like, just like Perry Mason was on the TV shows. You know, I'm going to lay out my case. Really, I was more like Sean Spicer in that moment, <laughs> Donald Trump's White House. I was just going off on a tirade. But I'm laying out every point, and I'm just tearing them down one by one by one. And at one point, about two minutes in, the counselor stops me. And she says, do you realize what your words are doing to your wife right now? And I kind of stop. It was a very humbling moment. A couple of weeks later, I was at these, this um, pastor's conference. Uh, some of you know I was at a conference uh, for a week, uh, a few weeks ago. And one of the people I had lunch with was a guy some of you know. His name was Doug Stevens. He was our former interim pastor here years ago before I came. And I wanted to have lunch with him because I wanted to check in on him and see how he was doing. Um, he had had a stroke, a, a second stroke just before the holidays, and he had lost some motor function and things like that. He lost the ability to speak well. Well, when I'm having lunch with him, I was just completely impressed by how well he was doing, how well his recovery process has been. He, you couldn't even tell that he had had a second stroke. But I asked him, I said, are there any recurring effects to the, this second stroke that you have? And he laughed and he said, yeah. He said, one big one. He says, I have to think now before I speak. And he says, you know, actually, I think it's a good thing. But he says, I can't speak now without thinking about every single word. And then God reminds me of the counselor appointment a few weeks before. And I thought to myself, you know, what would it, what, what would it look like if you and I, if we were just unable to speak without thinking about every single word we said? How might our relationships change and be, and be strengthened and grow if we were forced to not speak until we thought about every word we said, just like Doug has to do now every single day of his life? How much more carefully would we choose our words? You know, we can be laser focused on the big stuff, on our jobs, on our careers, on our family and friends. But if we're not faithful in the small stuff like this, we can damage and destroy some of those very same relationships that we're working so hard to flourish. So, James lifts up this one thing. He says, your words, be careful with them. But the second thing I want to show you this morning that he really brings to attention, that's one of the things we might consider small stuff, is subduing selfish ambition. This is his, his word, subduing selfish ambition. James spends a lot of time on this. He says, it's our endless quest as human beings to take care of number one. And this is what he says about it in chapter 3 of James. He says this, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by their deeds, and the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition... In your hearts, do not boast about it and deny the truth or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual and of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. And then he says in verse 17, but the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure and then it's peace loving 
and it's considerate and submissive and it's full of mercy and good fruit and impartial and sincere. And he says, peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Now, in the chapter that follows, James explains about all the arguments and fights that we tend to have with others. And he says, those arguments and fights, he says, they come from the selfish ambition that we carry because we want to get what we want, whether it's an organized medicine cabinet or something more important. He says, these self-centered ambitions and desires might get us what we want, but at what cost? For example, our selfish ambition around stuff can cause us to spend excessively on ourselves and, and cause us to waste money. Our, our selfish ambition around power can cause us to use people to get what we want. Our selfish ambition around lust can cause us to fulfill our personal desires in selfish ways. Our selfish ambition around food and alcohol can cause us, can, it can give us temporary comfort, but can be damaging when they go unchecked in our lives. And you might say, yeah, you're, as you're doing these things, and you think no one, you know, no one else is watching but God, and you're like, yeah, yeah, I know I shouldn't do these things. I know they're probably not the right thing to do, but really, it's not that big of a deal. And James says, those selfish ambitions hurt the work of God in our lives, and they must be subdued. They must be taken out. He says we're to go after them. In fact, James says we're to grieve, mourn, and wail over them. We're to humble ourselves before God over them. Reminds me of uh, Billy Graham's grandson, Tolian Chavijan. Tolian was a... uh, pastor of a mega church in Florida, Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church, uh, D. James Kennedy's old church years ago. He was an accomplished writer, uh, Tolian was, until his whole world came crashing down on him. You see, the big stuff that he had accomplished in his life, even at a young age, was getting so much attention that he wasn't being faithful in the small stuff. A couple of summers ago, it came to light that Tolian was having an affair And the church asked him to resign. And then it came out that he had another one a year before, but it was kept quiet. Tolian left the ministry. His marriage fell apart. And uh, he recently, just not too long ago, he, he agreed to an interview. As he told about those dark months, many months ago, when all this stuff kind of hit the fan. And this is what he said. He said, as shocking and painful as all those losses were, my instinctive response shocked me even more. The rage, the blame shifting, the thirst for revenge, the bitter arrogance, the self-justified resentment, the dark self-righteousness, the control-hungry manipulation, the deluded rationalization, the deep selfishness. These things, they were they had become so overwhelming to him. He decided in that moment, many days after all this stuff happened, that the best thing that he could do would be to kill himself. So late in the night, he spent a few hours researching the best way to do it. And then he wrote out his suicide note. 
And as he was getting ready to do it, this is what he, he said. He, 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 in the interview, he said this. He said, how did I arrive at that dark place where I actually wanted to kill myself? He says, what I see now that I couldn't see then was that that explosion had been building for a few years. The shift from locating my, listen to this, the shift from locating my identity in the message of the gospel to locating my identity in my success as a messenger of the gospel was slow and subtle. So back to the story, he says, he he put down the suicide note. And he cried out to God like never before. And he said this overwhelming sense of peace came over him for the first time in a really long time. He said, God literally saved my life in that moment. You know what, guys? I think we can learn a lot from Tullian's story. It reminds us about how destructive the small stuff can be in our lives. Those things that we kind of hide off in the corner and think, ah, no one's going to know. No one's going to care. It's, you know, God, God will forgive me. God's God of grace, right? And he is. But as James is pointing out, faith without works. If we're not faithful in what we've called ourselves to be as followers of Jesus, and he says it's dead, it's worthless. It's all for nothing. So he reminds us how important it is to be Faithful in the small stuff, Tolian does. But here's what I also love about his story. He reminds us about how powerful God is to be able to pull us out of the messes that we put ourselves in and how he is able to restore us in time. Now, when Tolian was asked, why are you doing this interview with us? And and what do you see as next in your life? This is what he had to say. I love this. He says... I don't believe that God allows people to fail and fall so that they will be forever silent. I believe he allows these things and brings about repentance so that we will speak more loudly and clearly and humbly of our sin and his grace than ever before. He says, that's not just a calling for pastors. He says, that's a calling for all Christians to do whatever to do according to whatever God gifts God has given them. And then he says, regardless of what I end up doing professionally, I will spend the rest of my life telling people about the amazing grace of God that saves wretches like me. Amen. Right? Me too. <laughs> you know, James is a straight talker. He doesn't mince words in this little book that he provides us. He knew. He knew those things that we tend to minimize, those things that we tend to secretly run from, that we tend to avoid dealing with in our lives, they can destroy others. And they can destroy us. And he reminds us in these few words to be faithful and obedient in the small stuff and not just laser focused on the big stuff. So, guys, now I have to say this. The ball is in your court this morning. What will you do with what you've heard? How faithful are you in the little things? Those things that you think no one will ever see. Is there a little area of your life that you've been minimizing, that you've been ignoring 
What is it that Christ is asking of you even now? You know, life is filled with millions of small tests of obedience where every single day we say yes or no to God. Moments where we face our inner demons or we ignore them. And each day we determine how great our future will be and how we'll be used by God based on our faithfulness in the small things. Jesus actually said, if you're faithful in the little things, then you'll be faithful in the large ones. But if you're dishonest in little things, you won't be honest with greater responsibilities. So here's my encouragement to you this morning. May you discover for yourself that the measure of greatness, that the measure of success isn't found in wealth or prosperity or popularity or power or accomplishments in this life but rather in how your creator sees your greatness. May you be faithful in the small stuff and in so doing, see how God opens doors for you as he entrusts you with more. Would you pray with me? Lord, I just... Uh, now, I, even now as I share this word from you, I sense this heaviness in the room that I don't normally feel but Lord I, I, I'm sure I know because <laughs> you did this in me you're working in many of our lives right now and you're identifying some places in our lives that we've been running from Lord many of us who are here today we have committed to be followers of Jesus we have committed to live the life regardless of how difficult it might become but Lord, with all of us, every one of us, there are those places, there are those dark corners of our lives that we tend to ignore, that we tend to not want to shine a light on and deal with because it's going to be too difficult. And we tell ourselves it's not really worth it. It's just the small stuff. God, would you help us to feel the heaviness, the burden for those things that you feel? how they break your heart and how oftentimes those things that we think aren't hurting anybody, they're hurting others if they were discovered and even more so it's hurting ourselves. It's destroying us bit by bit. God, would you forgive us for the little things that tend to just kind of build up over time? Lord, would you help us even in this moment to not sense a bunch of guilt and remorse, although I know your, your conviction is working, but Lord, that you would give us a sense of freedom as we hand those things off to you, as we ask for forgiveness, as we throw those things before you, God, and leave them there and know that your grace isn't just sufficient, but it goes way above and beyond where we need it to go. Lord, we thank you for sweating the small stuff. And reminding us today to do this so as well. Let me just also say this morning, with every head bowed and every eye closed, if you're here this morning, and this message has just kind of struck you a, a funny way, because you've never said yes to Jesus. You've, you've never accepted 
the creator of the universe into your life and said, God, I want you to call the shots in my life. You, for you, you've, you've done that yourself. You've called the shots. And maybe you're here today and you've heard this message and it's been a little unsettling, but what if the reason it's been unsettling to you today is because God is calling you to himself. God is wooing you and drawing you closer to him. And so many times you've heard him whisper in your ear, drawing you to him, and you've kind of balked or, or pushed away from it, and God's doing it once again. What would it look like for you this morning, before you leave, to just simply say yes to God? Say, God, I know I haven't lived a perfect life, but I'm willing to give it to you. If that's you this morning, or maybe at some point in your life you accepted Christ, but you've totally done your own thing for a long time, and you feel like you just need to kind of make things right with God again, I want to encourage you in the silence of your heart to just pray this prayer with me and allow God's Spirit to begin to work in that heart. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I I come to you and I confess that I need you. It's a hard thing for me to say, God, that I I actually need you, but but I, I do. I recognize I can't deal with all the small stuff on my own. And I know that I've hurt people and I've hurt people that I love. And I know, God, today that I've even hurt you. God, I ask that you would forgive me for those things. God, I ask that you would not only forgive me, but that you would forget just as you say in your word you do, that you just place those things as far away as the east is from the west and that you remember them no more. God, thank you for being willing to do that for me today. As I confess that you are my Savior and Lord, God, I thank you that you sent your son to a cross 2,000 years ago to bleed and die for me so that this work right now in this moment could take place. And God, I... I'm so thankful. And God, I ask that you would come into my heart right now and fill me with your, your Holy Spirit and begin to change me, God, from the inside out and make me into the man or woman of God that you've called me to be. God, may you and I be set on a new course today. God, as I walk out these doors in a few minutes, may it be with a spring in my step because I know that I am forgiven. I know that despite the heaviness of the things I've done, the things I haven't done that I should do, God, that you have released me from all of them. And that I have a new start. We all do. In Jesus' name, amen.